We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arsenal is looking great on the pitch, but by the way, if you happen to have 107 million pounds you're not using, could you please send it to the club? This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Alex Smith. You can me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right, 107 million pound loss for Arsenal. We will dive into that, I am sorry to say. <laughs> I am sorry to say. Uh, as well as the ticket rise, which has been greeted with uh, the exact reception you'd expect. We're going to touch on that, but I don't want to bore you to pieces and I don't want to lose you, so going to have a really special guest on to start the show to talk nothing but tactics and player performances. That way, if you want to tune out at the end of the podcast and skip the part about finances, you can. Um, we'll just touch on them. I don't want you to think we're going to go too deep on it, but we will be discussing that with Tim and Clive and Paul. Um, we might get an expert on later in the week to dive into it a little more deeply, and I hope you don't um, hate us for that, but it does seem like a fairly important thing when the club announces their financial results, so we don't want to overlook it as we try to cover every aspect of the club. But the good news is you get rewarded. You get rewarded. Because before we talk about that, we're going to be speaking with Adrian Clark. Adrian Clark is uh, the host of The Breakdown Live on Arsenal 360. Adrian Clark is an exceptional analyst of the game. Adrian Clark is someone who I learn a lot from when it comes to tactics and player performances. And so we are going to dive into all of that with Adrian. Now you can find him on Twitter at Adrian J. Clark. Let me try that again. You can try find him on Twitter at Adrian J. Clark. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Elliot. Yeah, great to be back on the show. Yeah, it's great to have you back on. I hope everyone will uh, make sure to check out the Breakdown Live uh, on Arsenal 360 and big things coming for that show as well. So we'll look out for that. But uh, you are, I I think it's fair to say, a tactical genius, a a brilliant analyzer of the game. And I was hoping that we could go over some of the tactical tweaks that have been happening at Arsenal over the last couple of weeks and months. Mm. Uh, Well, yeah, I'm not sure about tactical genius, but I do do enjoy analysing the the team, the players, etc. Yes, it's one of the favourite aspects of my job. So, yeah, far away. Well, I think one of the things that people get obsessed with is um, systems, right? And 
is it a four, two, three, one or four, three, three? And Clive likes to give me a little rap on the, on the knuckles that systems change and they're fluid within games. But I think one thing that we can see pretty clearly from past maps, from using our eyes is that there has been a bit of a change to something that we could at least loosely reference as a four, three, three that sees Shaka playing as more of a left eight and less of a double pivot. Mm. And I think in general, that means that the, that sort of base three becomes one of the fullbacks I feel like in possession instead of, you know, having maybe Shaka drop into that role. Mm. So it seems to have pushed the whole team up the pitch. We press more, we're higher up in territory. And I'm wondering what you think may have precipitated that change. Uh, if you do see it as a four, three, three and how you react to that, that tweak and the way it's impacted our attack in particular. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. Uh, 100% that is how we are at the moment. It's, uh... I would kind of look at it and say four one four one, you know, with very much Thomas Partey as the as the holder at the at the base there, with with Xhaka to the left, quite wide actually at times when we have the ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, at times against Brentford, he was he was on the touchline, and it was Kieran Tierney on his inside. So so there is no partnership as such with Thomas Partey at the base of the midfield at the moment. So yeah, Partey's to the left, and Erdegaard is kind of moving away from that number 10 position to be more of the right-sided midfield guy. And I think that the idea, as you rightly point out, is to is to get those guys pressing higher up the pitch to support the forwards, to close the space inside the final third, but but also to create overloads when we do have possession. I think that's that's always been really, really important to Mikel Arteta to, to create 2v1s, 3v2s, against the opposition fullbacks and and against Brentford it was especially pronounced I really thought we got a lot of joy there with with Erdegaard Saka and Cedric really standing mm. out down down the right and and at times it, it worked on the left as well but it's not as natural on the left because Granite Xhaka he's <laughs> more accustomed obviously to playing in the middle of the park so so yeah in possession I think I can see I can see overwhelming positives out of possession when we lose the ball it makes me a little bit nervous especially against the the better teams because what you'll see especially if granite goes to press high up the pitch and gets bypassed we see thomas Partey stranded um, yeah. and 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 opponents were you can outnumber him down the It's a good of example field. of that the the Jimenez chance uh, in the wolves game sort of right after they had scored Perfect example. Absolutely yeah. perfect. Um, I was looking at it earlier, actually, when I was doing some analysis. And so Granit Xhaka went to press Neves quite high up the pitch. But of course, Kieran Tierney has the right wing back to look after. So he's tight to Semedo and it just leaves this huge space for Daniel Pedence to, to drift into, to the left of Partey, far enough away from Gabriel where he can't get tight. And and that is the issue Um, from transitions. We will be vulnerable against the better teams. It's as simple as that if we persist with this this particular ploy. So I think right now in the games that that we've had, I can absolutely see the logic in, in playing that way. When we come up against Spurs, against Chelsea, against Liverpool, will we revert to more of an orthodox two in there just just to sort of add that layer of protection it's going to be interesting it is interesting and you know my my default sort of feeling about that is well we're not going to have the kind of possession and territory that we have against some of these other teams so it will be almost more natural 
that we wind up in a more defensive shape um, just by virtue of the fact that they control the ball and they push you back so much. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we saw Arsenal be a little more aggressive and engage higher up the pitch against Manchester City, and I thought it worked pretty well. I guess what I'd ask you, Adrian, because you said, you know, it does worry you out of possession. Mm -hmm. You know, my belief, and again, this is my belief, is that our, our system, our shape, has been too focused, maybe understandably, but too focused on defensive solidity for a while. And we mm -hmm. saw that the attacking metrics were probably not what they needed to be. And saw it with our eyes, just that the attack produced a paucity of chances, right? So we tried to nick games with six or seven shots and, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of clear big chances. And now you look at us taking 27 shots, 23 shots, you know, moving up the list of teams with shots in the league. I saw an expected goals table mm -hmm. that the expected goals difference over the last 10 games in the Premier League, Arsenal are second only Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question to you is, do we just need to accept that, yeah, these teams that press, that push up the pitch, that control territory, have that vulnerability, and maybe we're going to see a few more chances than make us comfortable, but it's a it's a reasonable trade-off for what we're gaining as an attacking team. It's a good point. Yeah, I think I think there is always a trade-off, isn't there? Yeah, no, I, no I think so. No perfect team, right? <laughs> no, exactly. And, and, and every team has their flaws and vulnerabilities, and and yeah, that would be that would be ours in this particular makeup. You, you're bang on in terms of the attacking metrics. They're so much better, aren't they? Um, I was the chances created last season, just just straight chances created. Mm -hmm. Arsenal were twelve. <laughs> this is yep. Arsenal, and and that's why it was so frustrating. That's why we had to be so efficient in front of goal, and it's why we finished where we were. But this season, right now, we're fourth. And that and that is a huge difference, and well, it, it it comes with not just the, the, this aspect of our game, which is definitely improving, the squeezing up the pitch, the mm -hmm. winning the ball higher, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it comes with the flow as well, and I think that this group of players are now a bit more familiar with each other, and the just the patterns of play that they produce are less. I don't I don't like to use the word robotic, mm -hmm. but it was a little bit mechanical at times last season this season there's a far greater flow to it and um and that's why we're we're hurting teams um with greater frequency i guess yeah and i mean you know i think the brentford and wolves games are good examples because in the brentford game last season you could see something silly where you know we're not quite as dominant on the ball we don't create as many chances and instead of winning that 2-1 with a silly worthless you know late goal from brentford that's an equalizer right mm. or against wolves you know, we we gift them the, that early goal, and we don't create enough pressure to to score the two you need to win. And I I just think you mm. make the game so much easier for yourself when you put the opposition under the kind of pressure defensively that we are now. There's a couple of individual performances that this has ramifications for, though. And you mentioned Thomas Party. I want to start with him actually because I don't think any of this works without him. And I think we've seen his best football in the system. And basically. This system puts more load, more pressure, more responsibility on him. Mm. I think that's what you want to do with your best players. And I'm curious how you see his his performances and, and his game developing now that he's really being tasked with essentially being the entire midfield, because I think it's brought the best out of him. I do agree. I, I think that he was exceptional against Brentford. I really do. I think that he, <clears throat> he, he was so confident, he was serene, and but also broke up play fantastically well. I agree. I think that he likes to be that player. Now, a lot of a lot of Arsenal fans would look at Thomas Partey's striding runs and the way he wants to get forward and say, well, 
you don't want to take too much of that away from him. And I, my response would be, when this this way of playing doesn't, because what we saw in that Brentford game, especially when the Xhaka and Erdegaard split wide, was a great big hole down the middle for him. Mm, yeah. So, so you, we we could spread the ball wide to come back in for Thomas Partey to then pick the ball up and be able to thread those those vertical passes over the top through the lines into into Lacazette sort of oh we're opening up a corridor for for balls into Lacazette but also a corridor for Thomas Partey to surge into at the right time so yeah I I think it it works well for him he stepped it up a gear the last couple of games my only issue with Thomas Partey is is what's going on between his ears really I just want him Mm. to push himself and to just demand a little bit more more because I think he's just he's maybe been guilty of cruising through through too many matches this season mm. with that greater responsibility knowing he's on his own I, I do believe I think you're right to observe this I do believe that it's it's sharpened his mind sharpened his focus and when he's focused he's a great player I think we yeah. can all see that <laughs> yeah maybe maybe shoot less okay. oh definitely <laughs> shoot less yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I agree I just think and and this is the interesting thing about Football, sometimes we think of things in a fairly simplistic or binary way like, oh, well, if the center backs push up, you know, that helps support the attack and it's more more aggressive, but it leaves you more vulnerable in behind. But actually, you know, if you look at the Jimenez chance, Adrian, I think this is where seeing the team as a unit and positional play is so important because if party's alone in midfield and Shaq is going to step up and play the role of the eight, actually, don't you need White and Gabriel up the pitch closer to that group so that you don't have the gaps between the lines. And actually, I think for the Jimenez chance, maybe the, the center backs are, are a little deeper. I can't yeah. remember how the play develops. But as a result, there's that pocket of space behind Shaka and Party, but, but before you get to the center backs that, that they can attack. Whereas if if those center backs are more compressed and closer up, there's a lot less room between the lines to play into. Yeah, and but but that comes with practice, doesn't it? And, mm-hmm. and the more they're put in those situations, the more they realize, ah, I need to be five yards higher up. I need to be five yards to my left, et cetera, et cetera. I just think it's a, still relatively new. It's a work in progress. It is a t- it is a tough one because in that particular example, where Pedence picks up the ball is in that classic half space, isn't it? Between a fullback, between a central midfielder and between the left-sided centre-back. Mm. Do we want Gabriel man-marking Pedence there? The answer in that scenario was, yeah, he should have gone and, and been tighter and engaged. But then you're getting into sort of Leeds United man marking territory, where mm, we don't want you're, that. <laughs> you're very reliant on on individuals tracking their men perfectly, and if they don't, then everything collapses. So, yeah, it's it's new to me. I have to say, it's it's quite mm. a sophisticated way to to defend, really. Um, and it has implications also for players that maybe had a role they were really comfortable with, like Kieran Tierney, who maybe mm. isn't at the top of his game right now, but like yeah. Tierney had the traditional fullback bomb on overlap, cross it into the box kind of role. And now mm. he has a much more subtle role. Sometimes he has to be in the half space covering the position behind Shaka. Sometimes he's out wider so that mm. Martinelli can push more central, but he's not just bombing on up the wing. And I, mm. I don't know that he looks totally comfortable with it. He doesn't. Game. He doesn't. Well, the, the game that really stands out, apart from that that sort of Wolves chance, is Chelsea. Mm. If, you, if you cast your mind back to that one right at the start of the season, 
was it Mason Mount in that position? I think it was causing a carnage, really. And, mm, and then yeah. Reese James flying around on the outside. It then it then relies, doesn't it, on so if Kieran Tierney, for example, is expected to drop inside it, and mark the attacking midfielder, then it's very reliant on Martinelli or whoever's playing on the left wing to to track the rampaging fullback. Now. Martinelli is is a forward, um, so it's very risky. And we saw Semedo get in a couple of times. Reese James did the same for Chelsea. I think when it was Bukayo Saka in that position. So do we, you're putting a lot of emphasis on your wide forward to then to then be switched on enough and to track back. So it, yeah, playing this way comes with an element of risk, but it definitely feels as if Mikel Arteta and the coaching staff are prepared to take that risk this season because of the gains that we've talked about inside yeah. the opposition half. So it, it makes us quite a much more exciting team to watch, doesn't it? Um, at both ends of the pitch. I have to admit it appeals to my preference, which yeah. is all, all I care about, obviously. <laughs> but well, yeah, I, I And if you don't it. trust, if your defence isn't brilliant at soaking up pressure anyway, or you're not fully, you know, trusting of that back four and midfield too, then, then why not attack? Mm. Uh, you know, defend from the front with with greater you know um, numbers. I, I do, I do think that Lacazette leading the line as well pro- suits the way of playing because he will sort of spark it much much more often than than the Bamiang. So mm. yeah, it's it's good. I, I mean, it's more Liverpool than well than than sort of the way we were playing before. Yeah, it's funny you mention them because I think also if you look at Liverpool and City, like they do push up in this way and the way they solve for those vulnerabilities is a little different. I mean, Liverpool have a cheat code in Van Dyke, right, who can <laughs> chase down any ball that goes over the top or goes yeah. in behind and he doesn't get beat off the dribble and he doesn't get beat in a foot race. And Manchester City, let's just say it, they are masters of tactical fouling. And mm. if their press doesn't recover the ball, they grab, they kick, they hold, they do what they have to do to stop the counterattack. Mm. Um, And I think maybe one thing that we have to get a little bit more clever about is the fact that if you don't recover the ball with your press and if they're able to make that first pass out beyond the press, Mm. then you have to think about the dark arts a little bit because you will be exposed. But Mm. the the interesting thing I wonder, and, and this is something we probably won't find out for a few weeks, unfortunately, I'm wondering if Tierney's role has been adjusted a little bit with Tomiyasu out because Cedric is more comfortable playing in the attacking third. And so he's given Tierney a little more, he's asked him to do a little more of what Tomiyasu had been doing um, rather than asking Cedric to do it. And I wonder if that might revert back when Tomiyasu's back. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think that that, that's certainly the case. They've always done this, haven't they? One, you've had a sort of lopsided back four. When it's Tomiyasu, Tierney plays left wing, doesn't he? Um, And then you'll see Xhaka sort of drop into those left back spots. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I think it's a horses for courses approach. But but the what pleases me and you I'm sure and a lot of the fans <laughs> watching is that the players look much more comfortable now with these little subtle nuances and, and tweaks than they did earlier on. And, and that's normal, isn't it? Because they've just practiced it and they've had longer together as a team. So no, it, yeah. it, and it does appear as well that the, all of the players are buying into buying into it. No one seems to be complaining. There's not, the body language is really positive at the moment. Not seeing hardly anyone, you know, blaming somebody else. Even after we conceded against Wolves, right? I mean, we saw the Ramsdale cam uh, that Arsenal put out and like, 
a lot of encouragement after that goal, not a lot of berating one another. Yeah, exactly. It's a, and, and I think uh, having that tight-knit squad, that slimmed-down squad, mm-hmm. even though we all wanted that that Vlajevic, basically, <laughs> up front, um, or, or another striker, it was disappointing not to get that. But the slim, the benefits of a slim down squad are that everyone's got a part to play. Everyone feels involved. Um, we've had youth team players on the bench the last few games because that's how small the squad is. It's mm. tight knit, and and that they were in in it together. And a lot of these guys are sort of in their, what, I'd say, second full season as Premier League players with Arsenal. It's um, yeah, I think they're starting to enjoy themselves. Yeah. I, I I totally agree. And look, there's always a Rorschach test within the Arsenal squad, and, and I want to get to that one now with you, which is Alexander Lacazette and the role mm. he's playing. Mm. Um, it is difficult because I think you can appreciate what he's doing and also appreciate the opportunity to upgrade at that position without necessarily meaning that Lacazette is not doing the job he's being asked. I think one thing that has changed, and we benefited from it, Adrian, with, with this push up the pitch and to a more 4-3-3 is that Lacazette was playing really as a false nine earlier in the season. I mean, coming back to the halfway line. He's still dropping in and connecting, but now it's at the edge of the final third or the top of the D. It's a little more up the pitch, which means he's also able to be involved at the ends of moves. I'm curious where you are with this Rorschach test, and particularly his Wolves performance, because there are a lot of people that felt he made a lot of mistakes or missed a lot of opportunities in that game that could have gotten us the extra goals we needed earlier in the game. Mm-hmm. But you also look at, his eight shots, his, let's call it a goal at the end, his two key passes, his three dribbles, his box entries. You know, he he filled up the stat sheet, as you might say. And so mm. I'm curious, when you look at the ink blots on the paper, what do you see with Lacazette? A, a guy who is fundamental to the way we're playing or, you know, weak link is a little um, a little bit pointed, a little loaded, mm. but, you know, someone that that maybe can do more. Oh, in the here and now, I think he's integral. I do. I, I, and I enjoyed his performance against Wolves a lot, not because he missed chances, which he did, but just because he was so um, so involved. He was so hungry to impact the match, out of possession, on the ball. I th- I, I really enjoyed his performance. He, he played with so much character, mm. and and as a fan. I want to see players with character. I want to see players just just wanting the ball. And and he he didn't hide. He didn't shirk his responsibilities at all. And when you've had seven, six, seven, eight shots and not scored, and you know the fans are on your case, it's easy to go into your shell. But he didn't. It, the opposite happened. In fact, and and even with the goal that he, that he kind of scored, that lovely little deft flick. For mm-hmm. Pepe for the one-two, that was genius. That was yeah, brilliant. Yeah, outside of the right, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was that was absolutely top class. Earlier on in the game, I remember he, he took up a position in the in a sort of pocket, and then he dragged the ball past Ruben Neves outstandingly, and then had he had a good shot on on target from outside the area of his left. He made some good runs. I thought it was terrific. I really did, and yeah, I think if you take him away. And and I get and I love Martinelli and I and I also think he's got a real future as a as as the guy down the middle, but I don't think he he would offer as much tactically as Lacazette does at the moment. There might be times where we need him there, but but in the here and now, I think he knits it together yeah. really well. And 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 going back to to the Odegaard thing, 
Odegaard kind of moving away from the space that Laka wants to drop into is really important because Odegaard is in effect the team's number 10, but he isn't. He, he's playing on that right right side and and it's just creating a, a, a bit more space around Lacazette to receive passes and it's changing the angle up as well. And it's, um, yeah, I just think it's working for all concerned. I mean, Odegaard looks... Looks a bit Urzelish, doesn't he? <laughs> when he when he goes out to that right side to create those overloads, and and you know, I'm I'm thinking about Urza when he was in really top form, but with like Ramsey's engine because the yeah. running he does yeah. is yeah. really impressive. And I, you know, yeah. I think the days of being able to support a luxury player who just wants to, you know, drop into pockets yeah. of space and play little dagger balls and then switch off, you know, almost the way Messi is used now, you know, but Messi is Messi. Yeah. <laughs> we, we are not a team that can afford to carry no. that. And Odegaard no. does a share of running. And I, you know, I think a hallmark of good coaching is putting players in positions where they look natural and they thrive. And like mm. the switch of system has brought party to life. It's brought, you know, a number of players to life. I think it's improved Lacazette, but no one looks better to me than Martin Odegaard. Mm. Um, you know, and I had said on a previous episode, Adrian, that I think, you could take any players out of this team right now and do okay replacing them. I'm not trying to diminish, you know, Saka or or Laka or Smith Rowe Martin, but you could do, you know, you could bring in Pepe and be okay or Smith Rowe for Martinelli. But between Party and Odegaard, I don't know that we have a player that can do what those two are doing. And Odegaard in particular, and I, I think it's why there's some Shaka focus because you see what the right eight is doing. And there's that tendency to want to be like, well, if we had a left eight like that too, but but Odegaard really is. I I feel he's raised his level, and and really showing that he's more than a luxury player. That he he's willing to put in the work. He's the opposite of a luxury yeah. player. Yeah, he's he, he runs pretty much further than anybody else. Was it like twelve kilometers in the Wolves game? Or yeah, yeah, it was. It was amazing, and he doesn't stop moving. I think his awareness of where to run is 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 really smart. Um, I mean, the the opposite left day because Xhaka does look a little bit of a fish out of water there. That is, it's not his natural game. Um, in a, in a very attack minded system, and we have seen this. It's Smith Rowe. He's he's that guy. But but long term in the big games, I don't. I wouldn't see his going with Partey, Smith Rowe, and Erdegaard. I think you have to have more of a maybe natural, in FIFA. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to have more of a box, to, a natural box to box midfielder on that side to balance it out. But but yeah, Erdegaard's been fantastic, and and he's more heavily involved in the match now than he was when he was sort of central where he had license to go left, to go right. And there was a responsibility on him to break into the box. I just don't think he scores enough goals or has breaks into that, that danger zone often enough to be a guy that solely plays behind the striker. I think that, that his position is as a, you know, give me the ball, ball playing central midfielder, you know, that wants yeah. to go forward. And, and yeah, he, he's been brilliant of late, absolutely superb. So yeah, long may that continue. It's the, it's the energy that he's bringing to that role as well as yeah. the intelligence. Well, and I think the thing we forget, or maybe, maybe we don't forget, but, but can't be overstated is when your team is 22 year olds, 23 year olds, 21 year olds, 20 year olds, you know, whatever the case may be, as I just read numbers out, um, <laughs> the opportunity for organic improvement is massive, right? Because they're going to start to hit their prime. They're going to start to theoretically or ideally get better and better. And so some of it is, oh, the tactics improve this player. And some of it is just the players are getting better. 
because they're <laughs> they're coming into their prime. They're playing more Premier League football. They're getting more comfortable. I mean, look at how much Sack is improving. You know, is some of that Mikel's coaching and the tactics, of course, and some of it is just what you'd expect from a sensational young player who's getting more game time. Yeah, I think and enjoy, enjoying yeah. their football as well. Yeah, and yeah. Give it, it, what what Arteta has done, and this is this is you know arguably the the best thing he's done is to give these early twenty somethings the responsibility to say no. I trust you. I'm not not looking for anyone else. This is this is your role. I believe you will, you can do it now, and I believe you'll get better and better at it. And he's made them the fulcrum of the side. And uh, well, and, and you, a lot of people may argue that they've made themselves the fulcrum of the side. Uh, it's somewhere between the two, I suppose. But but yeah, they they are the driving force. And and you would expect, yeah, I mean, twenty one, twenty two, twenty, yeah. He, 23, 24, 25, you would expect them to be even better. It's not guaranteed. Look at Deli Ali. Deli Ali was sensational at when he first joined Spurs from MK Dons when he was 19, 20, and he doesn't look the same player now. So it's not guaranteed that there'll be an upward curve, but but you would expect it in the case of the guys that we've got. With Saka, I'm sure you, I mean, you've seen it with your own eyes. The way that he drives at defenders now, it's like he's doing it at such a quicker speed now. There's yeah. no stopping. He's, he's he has to be doubled, right? You can't you can't leave him with one man on him, and that just opens up so much opportunity for players to flow into the box. Yeah. He's running. He's running at defenders now mm-hmm. as quickly as Salah runs at defenders or Mane or, mm-hmm. or these guys. Whereas before, it was maybe a stop start motion. You use a trick to, to beat a man, but he's, he, there's no messing around at the moment. And I think that just comes with physical development as well as obvious confidence because they're, they're, this is their level now and, 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 and they're absolutely loving it. So, yeah, there's so much to get excited about at the moment. So much. Yeah. Well, I, I think then one of the reasons also <clears throat> I think Lacazette comes into focus is what's happening on the left-hand side too. And, mm-hmm. you know, I look, Saka has Odegaard floating over there. Mm-hmm. He's got Ben White playing, you know, yeah. chip balls over the top that he can yeah. run onto. On the left, you've got a converted central midfielder at eight. You've got Gabriel who maybe doesn't have the same, you know, deftness of passing mm-hmm. um, that, that White does. And so the left, the left pod has to do a little more work on its own. Um, but there's always going to be a debate. In every team, you know, in every Arsenal team, certainly a so-and-so should start or such-and-such should start. And you have a really interesting one with Martinelli and Smith-Rowe mm. because I happen to be a big Martinelli fan. I believe his ceiling is, you know, all the way at the top. Mm. Um, kind of like Jurgen Klopp has said many a times, but I'd like him to keep his name out of his mouth. <laughs> um, you know, and, and Smith-Rowe's our leading scorer. And so I think there is that sort of, again, FIFA idea to be like, well, what if we play Saka, Smith, Rowe, Martinelli, you know, and, and just sort of lean into all of these talented youngsters. Maybe it's a little too soon and a little too, um, it leaves you a little too vulnerable to do that. But I'm curious how you see the battle for that position between Smith, Rowe and Martinelli, because I said previously, like you couldn't blame Mikel for picking either one over the other. And it's certainly a handy thing to have on the bench, but you know, they both are the kind of players that I don't know how you leave either one out, you know? Yeah, it, it is a quandary because they've got different skill sets but are equally effective, aren't they? So, yeah, it's tough. I, what I will say on, on all four of them, I think it's a great it's a great um, thing to have up your sleeve 
when you're chasing a game, you know, you can, if you've got the option to bring one off the bench and not take one of them off and you can bring those four on potentially behind a, a Lacazette when you go chasing the game, that, that is exciting proposition and quite scary, I would imagine for, for opponents. Yeah. Cause Smith Rowe offers a, a bit more, a bit more without the ball, probably he'll tuck in and, and do his bit to win the ball back. And he's such a driving force. He's brilliant. Where Arsenal, for me, Arsenal are a team that are at their best on the transition. When when we win the ball back in our own half, that's when we've scored almost all of our best goals this season. When we make those sort of 70-yard sweeping moves going forward. I recently put together that top 10 goals of the season so far and, and a lot of them were like that. Um, and Smith Rowe's sensational in those situations with the ball at his feet. But... Martinelli is sensational in those situations, running in behind, isn't he? Offering that yeah. sort of pass between the lines, behind the fullback. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real, real tough one. Um, yeah, I, I would flip-flop, <laughs> flip-flop my opinion from game to game. I get, if you were to ask me today, I might say, ah, oh, I want Smith Rowe in there because in my head is 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 the goal uh, that he scored recently against Brentford. But and Martinelli wasn't quite his best against Wolves. But then you flip it around and you think, oh, well, but that leads away. How good was Martinelli yeah. that day? So so it's it's a real toughie, but but they're both excellent. And, and, and I think they're getting more than enough game time to be content, which I think is, is key. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, Smithrow in particular, I mean, Martinelli came back last season from a very serious injury. Smithrow has had some injury history in his past. And so sharing some time and balancing starts between them isn't the worst thing at that age with that history. And, you know, to be fair, you could make an argument there's another guy who showed against Wolves that he's a little unfortunate not to play more, and that's Nicola Pepe. So there's there's maybe a little more here than we had suspected not too long ago. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to keep you over the time we had discussed, but no, I, I, I want to leave with sort of one question just about the rest of the season, and that's top four. I think going into this season, the the target was get back into Europe. And in saying that, I think the presumption was Europa League. Some of that was probably predicated on the fact that there was a belief that Manchester United would be better. Uh, they had finished second last season, maybe a little fortunately, but they'd strengthened uh, you know, by adding a geriatric crew of all-stars <laughs> to come in and, and, and bring them glory. It hasn't worked out quite hilariously. And now we find ourselves in a position where top four isn't just achievable – but where I think it's fair to say right now, from where we stand, we are probably favored to do it. Some people hate it when I say that. It is what it is. Mm. Um, I'm curious how big – I mean, I, look, that's a silly question. It's obviously huge. But I'm curious how you see that as a target from where we stand right now and if you think it is fair to ask this group to go and and finish top four now from this position. Because just to you know reveal myself – I think from the position we're in now, with two very flawed teams in Spurs and United chasing top four and and from really a disadvantaged position now, I think we should go on and do this. And I'm curious if you see it the same way. <laughs> it, it is. It's hard. It's hard to assess because when you look with your eyes, you say, "Yeah, we're we're better than Spurs. We, we, we yeah, we've got more positives." And we've got fewer obvious frailties. United have failed to convince all season. So yes, I, I do. I do think you're. It's understandable to feel that way. I just, I sense that we're more vulnerable to variables, i.e., injuries and suspensions. Mm. And and if 
Room to lose. Are saying the ring. referees are bent, Adrian? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, oh, you're right. <laughs> I'm not going down that route. But the I'll clip the, that audio, make sure it sounds like you said that, don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The yeah, the, everything has to fall in place for us, fitness wise and suspension wise, for us to maintain the current level, in my opinion. Um United have more depth, Spurs have a have a, a more seasoned manager that yeah, that is one of the most coveted in the world. They've got one of the they've got one of the top three centre forwards in the world. They've got Son as well and Conte, one of the most coveted managers. United have got Ronaldo, Bruno Fernandez, and such an expensively assembled side. We've got a rookie manager that's learning on the job and players that are learning on the job as well because they've never been in this position because they're so young. Uh, you know, they're in their early 20s. So, you know, that can be a positive and, or a negative, whichever way you you look at it. Um, I would prefer to regard us as underdogs still, <laughs> but, but, it, but it would feel a disappointment if we weren't to make it from this position because... Because the door is ajar, we can all see that. We can all see it. So yeah, it would it would feel a little bit if we were to finish fifth or sixth. I'd feel that progress has been made, but uh, I'd feel a little bit, a little bit sad that we didn't make top four because top four gives Mikel Arteta and the club the opportunity to bring in higher level players for the next phase mm. of, of, of development and. Um, yeah, uh, but that's not to say, by the way, that failure to make top four means we can't get high-level players because you can. Of course you can, but it it, it just makes us more attractive. <clears throat> yeah. If we uh, finish fifth, by the way, playing this brand of football the whole way through, which we, we you know, which isn't going to stop, then I, I still think would be a very attractive proposition for players in their early 20s looking to make a step up um, because they would... Players out there in England already and across the world will be looking at what Odegaard, Saka, Smith Rowe, Martinelli are doing this season and thinking, I would love to be part of that team. I yeah. want to be part of this. You know, I think I could improve playing for that side. So, so it, yeah, there's so many positives. But, yeah, underdogs, but I'd still feel a bit sad if we didn't make it. <laughs> well, especially considering, right, like, we whether you want to call us underdogs or not, I will not. I will not bore you with what the five thirty eight uh, predictions are, but mm. they do not have us as underdogs. I think the point is, if it were the case that we do not get there, mm. I think it probably means losses to Spurs and United, or at yeah. least to Spurs, and that that's always going to be painful. So let's hope that doesn't happen. I, no. I think. Look, the the thing that top four does for you in Champions League, obviously, you probably can ask for more money to spend. You have the backing of the club because they believe that. You've earned that right to spend it in a summer where you're chasing striker, the hardest position to probably solve. Mm. Having Champions League to offer obviously helps you attract. But let's not forget, we just sort of assume these young Arsenal kids will never leave Arsenal. Mm. You know, but like we've seen young Arsenal kids leave before, and we've seen kids leave other clubs. I mean, seen what Raheem Sterling did, right, with Liverpool. And I, mm. I think if you need to try to get Saka to sign a new contract, if you need to convince these guys to stay, a, a project on the up in Champions League football at the club that raised you, like that's a very attractive proposition. Mm. And I, I think it even more important than what we can spend in the summer is retaining this core of young talent. Yeah. And I think we sort of insulate ourselves from the threat of losing those players somewhat if we go on and achieve that. No doubt know? about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. it. It is huge. It really is. And, 
yeah, there's absolutely no chance that any of our prize assets would want to leave if we, if we were in the Champions League next season. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, it's exciting. For me, just being in the mix right until the, the, you know, the business end of this season, it represents a, a big step forward because Agreed. the last couple of years have been so so miserable, really. When <laughs> when you get into the not just in football, final, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But in the, yeah, of course. But the final furlong, you want to be involved, and and we will be involved this season, no doubt about that. And what a sweet feeling it would be if Arsenal yeah. were to you know get in ahead of money bags Manchester United, get in ahead of Tottenham Hotspur, who've gone all in on you know, Conte, it would be absolutely tremendous and, and it would it would um, give us great momentum um, to, to springboard forward with these really talented young players. So, yeah, we're on the verge of something tremendously exciting. I, I won't put you down as a pessimist for not saying ahead of Moneybags Chelsea as well, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it there. We've run over one a little bit. One step at a time. <laughs> one, one step at a time, indeed. Uh, Adrian's on Twitter at Adrian J. Clark. You should check him out on the Breakdown Live at Arsenal 360. Um, we have a, a live show in London coming up again in the not-too-distant future in association with the Arsenal Foundation and a fundraiser coming up for them. And who knows, Adrian, maybe uh, if you're available, it would be a delight to, to see you in person. Yeah, give me a shout. Yeah, it'd be nice to nice to meet a few of you guys. So um, yeah, everything's remote these days, isn't it? So yeah, give me a shout, give us a heads up and yeah, hopefully we can sort something. All right, well, thanks and talk to you soon. Cheers, mate. All right, the boys are coming up momentarily, but before I introduce them, I might as well remind you that if you are hiring... You need the best talent, and if you need the best talent, you need Indeed. Look, we've been talking about Indeed for a while, and before I go in and read all the stuff that I'm supposed to read, I just want to make the point, like, as you know, gone through some life events, looked into the whole, should I change careers? Should I find a career? Should I get an actual job? Because, you know, that's a thing that people do. And you, it is so dispiriting when you go on these multiple job sites because, like, it's just a mess. It's a complete mess. And then you, you go to Indeed, and it's like one place does it all, it, you don't have to deal with figuring out if you're on the right side or the wrong side or where your listing is or how it's going to be. So, you know, I just do want to say from a personal standpoint that like anytime you can simplify a process and improve a process that is otherwise uh, extremely chaotic and complex and time consuming, that's a good thing. So if you're hiring, you need Indeed because they're a hiring partner where you attract, interview and hire all in one place. That seems straightforward, right? And it's the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your need, your must-have requirements, or else you don't pay. So basically, like, either they provide the service they're saying they're going to provide, or you don't pay. That, that seems great. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one hiring partner that's powerful, can help you do it all. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job descriptions, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applicants applications that meet your must-have requirements. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash blue wire offer valid through March 31st. Go to indeed.com slash blue wire to claim your $75 job credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash blue wire terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need indeed. And I can't say Clive is that enough of that because I haven't introduced him yet, but Clive is on Twitter. Clive BFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Clive, is that enough of that? Indeed. There you go. Tim's on Twitter. Super. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Plus on Twitter, pause my pants, I'll pause. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. All right, so, Tim, as the resident season ticket holder who now, let's just say it, I, I mean, disgracefully only attends about 98% of the games, um, the, the ticket rise news is 
a, a talking point, not not just for you, it's for everyone, but but I think mm-hmm. it makes sense to lead with you. Look, Arsenal have announced that they're going to put up ticket prices 4%, I believe. Uh, mm. And in a stunning coincidence, they have also announced their £107 million loss for the year. So I wonder if, if they have timed those things in any way. But I do want to say this. Everybody has to argue over everything. It is the weirdest phenomenon I've ever seen. You would think that we'd all just be able to look at each other and be like, yeah, prices going up sucks. Yeah, it sucks. More expensive to go to the Arsenal. But we can't just do that because apparently we have to argue about, well, there's inflation and they lost a lot of money, so what do you expect them to do? Like, I get it. I get how business is run, and yet I can still say it sucks that people going to the Arsenal have to pay more money to do it when it's already quite expensive and a lot of people can't afford it. So I'm curious how you absorb, not just economically, but emotionally, psychologically, the, the news of the ticket rise because on the one hand, Yes, we are all intelligent, sentient beings who can recognize that mm. a business turning a loss and facing inflation, and by the way, potentially improving and having Champions League football, you never know, like might need to raise the prices for their product. But mm. you can also see that like the two or three million bucks that they might gain from that could be offset by, I don't know, not, you know, like sending players away <laughs> to not play for you yeah, when you yeah. gave them contract. Yeah, I mean, the point is there's been a lot of inefficiencies in the way the club is run, and maybe you can say, well, that's why we're putting up ticket prices. It all, there, there's the intellectual debate about it, and then there's just the, well, rising prices suck. It is the first time they've done it since 2014, so, you know, that mm-hmm. is that is a, that's a point to That's not quite true. Uh, I'll all right, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you expand on that. So I guess what I would say, without having to overdo it on the point that yes we all understand how business works what is your gut reaction to the news yeah I, f- I find this one really difficult because obviously there's your personal situation and then there's the personal situation of everyone else kind of looking at this rise and those two things aren't necessarily the same particularly at the moment where people have been so unevenly impacted by covid um so like personally thankfully i, I haven't really been um impacted by it um, which I'm incredibly grateful for, and that's for no other reason than dumb luck, quite frankly. Um, but there are a lot of people that have, and we're looking, you know, in the UK at big cost of living rises. Um, in April, all of the utility bills um, are going to go up. I'm sure the energy bills are going to really, really go up, even independently of you know the situation with Russia and Ukraine. They were going up anyway. Um, fuel price rises and things like that. Um, so it's it's really difficult to kind of wrap your head around when everyone's experiencing you know economics as it were so differently um on on the base of it i don't respond to this as emotionally as i have previous rises that's almost certainly because um financially just by dint of age i'm financially in a better position to absorb it than perhaps i was like when they did the six percent rise 10 years ago Mm. uh, 11 years ago now which was a very big mistake and they realized that arsenal and what they started doing was instead they wanted to introduce like more incremental rises um my understanding is that that's what they really wanted to do this time. Um, so I've known about this 4% rise for a couple of weeks. So that kind of softened the blow as, as well a, a, a bit, I guess. Um, but what they really wanted to do was perhaps do like 2% last summer and 2% this summer or something like that. But they mm. couldn't justify it um, in in the kind of the real teeth of the pandemic. And they did things like they were offering, offering like holidays on season tickets so people could, you know, um, forego theirs for a year and then get it back afterwards. And so I, I don't think they really wanted it to come to this, but 
Also, there have been stealth rises. Um, the club can say this is the first rise since 2014. It's not really. What they've done is they've hidden previous rises because of the changing context with cup credits. So usually Arsenal gets seven cup credits. And most years when we were in the Champions League, that was more or less spot on. There'd be the odd year that we'd have six and there'd be the odd year we'd have eight. Um, but that was more or less spot on. But then the Europa League comes in and we start going deeper in that competition where there's more games anyway. So you get all the, a few of these seasons where we go over the cup credit limit. Um, and that means you pay more on your season ticket the next year. So they hid a few small rises in there. Um, and, and then like this year, because there's no Europe, they put that down to two cup credits. And we actually didn't end up using either of them because we didn't play at home in the FA Cup. And the League Cup doesn't come into the season ticket at all. So like there is going to be like a bit of a rebate. Uh, for those two cup credits this summer. So like there's been a lot of stealth stuff happening, but this is the first time they've been able to say that or they've been in a position where they have to say, yes, this is a 4% rise. And actually I wasn't expecting them to say that. I was expecting them to announce this as a smaller rise due to the rebate, but really there's some still stealth built in. Um, I do get it from the club's perspective and I do get, you know, n- no one wants prices to go up ever. Um, and Arsenal, you know, Arsenal have always in previously had held this line that like, oh, we've only done like X amount of rises since 2006, like ignoring the massive, massive rises they implemented in 2003, four and five um, to get us to that stage for the, mm. for, to finance the stadium move. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, obviously like they're a PR savvy operation. So like how they announce these things is, you know, it's clever. There's a bit of sleight of hand involved. I get this one, I have to say, even if I don't, of course I don't agree with it, but I do get it more than I got, say, like the 6% in 2011, which was just naked greed, and it was the owners completely underestimating the extent to which they'd get kickback from the supporters. And there are things going into it like, you know, they're going to upgrade a lot of elements of the stadium, which are pretty expensive. They've probably had to overspend in the last couple of transfer windows to get Mm -hmm. a competitive team on the pitch. But it also brings other things to light, like you said, having to pay players to go away. Doing things in the commercial arena, still not really well enough, for example, like um, not having a separate sponsorship for the training kit and stuff like that, like just giving that away for free. Um, You know, a friend of mine just tweeted today, don't squeeze fans, squeeze sponsors. Um, mm. Why aren't we separating that out? Why doesn't London Colney have like um, someone's name? Because no one gives a fuck if like London Colney is sponsored by Adidas or whatever else. <laughs> There's no like emotional <laughs> uh, kind of pull there. So no. um, it, it does, you know, it does bring a bit of a spotlight onto some of those things. So I, I guess I'd sum up very broadly by saying I get it, but I don't agree with it. I do think the club deserve credit for extending um the 19 the discount to 19 to 21 year olds to all areas of the stadium not just like the family enclosure because when you're 19 to 21 you don't want to sit in the family enclosure um but i would also say that arsenal have been quite slow to do that anyway um and i i feel better about maybe subsidizing something like that to an extent um but yeah, I, I I get this one more than the others, and I get that they didn't want to do four percent all in one go. It's just the way the pandemic's gone. Um, but but I mean, obviously, I I don't agree with it in principle. Yeah, and I mean, 
this is what's so hard, right? I mean, if the question is, what can Arsenal charge and still fill up the stadium? It's probably more than this, mm. right? I mean, there, there is the this difficult discussion. Is the goal to be an economist and achieve the perfect balance of supply and demand? Because if that's the case, I think you can raise the price and still fill the stadium, especially if we're playing well and well, back in the champion. Yeah, if, if you want to really rigorously apply supply and demand, you could make every ticket over a hundred quid, and you wouldn't sell out, but you'd get thirty, forty thousand people. <laughs> and if you get thirty, forty thousand people paying those prices, that's more than you'd probably get selling out at the moment. So if you really brutally apply supply and demand, that's kind of what it's about. Mm, yeah, exactly. I, and and like, but but nobody seems to think that's the right way to look at this. And so Clive, like I try not to moralize about things too much. I, you know, I don't think it is a moral failing, you know, because then, then what the, you could also charge zero for tickets and still run the club. The guy is a billionaire. He could literally give the tickets away for free. And one thing we do know is like, if you give the tickets away for free, guess what happens? Like if, let's say you charge 10 pounds a ticket, you think that'd be great. You're just going to get scalpers, right? You're, you're going to see them on the black market for a thousand bucks a ticket. So, I mean, there is, there is a reality that the ticket has to approximate something that looks like value. Otherwise, gray markets, black markets do their thing and people get gouged anyway. So I get it. I'm, you know, I'm not a rube. I mean, maybe I'm a rube. Maybe I'm getting this totally wrong. But I, I think that it is, it is sort of one of these issues where most people who don't have to pay tickets will shrug. But I guess I do have a sense of sadness, Clive, for people coming out of a pandemic, facing inflation in other areas of their life, who really build their life around attending Arsenal in a way that isn't the case in other sports, now having to shell out more at a time when there's less to shell out. Yeah, I think um, a couple of things come to my mind, right? So the, the there is a change in dynamic in the stadium and potentially, I, I, I don't know if I spot this, but it feels a bit younger. It feels a bit more vibrant. Tim was saying that the away the away support i think is younger too yeah yeah i mean uh, i mean uh, the, the crowds you were well, particularly in the, in the early emirates era because it was quite expensive and that generally drives a certain level of fan a certain age of fan and i think i think Highbury was quite you know the fan was quite old there as well if i'm honest with you and so now there's full of blokes like me in the ground right initially and so but i sense a, fe- a different feeling now i sense definitely a lot more vocal crowd and a younger crowd and that tells me that some younger people can be starting to can be able to afford it right so i think it's important to protect that generation really important because they're the, they're the new energy they're the new people you know the people that fell in love with Arsenal, Arsenal Wenger and Thierry Henry etc they're getting on a bit now this is a new crew and i think it's very important we protect them things like safe standing make it easy for them to get in the stadium and I think it's really important we provide for the next generation. And I, and I just think, you know, for me, I, I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable to talk about this because I'm I'm always going to find it, right? I'm always going to find the money, and unfortunately, that, that I can. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I feel, you know, but I, I really do feel much like for the pandemic. I think it's affected younger people in a greater way. You know, I think it's affected them socially and social interaction, and, and I and I really feel it's hurt them more than it's hurt some of the uh, middle-aged people, shall we say, whose lives can continue. So I think it's important that the world is waking up again, that they, it's able to wake up, that people will be able to afford to do what they need to do. But everyone's being squeezed from all sides, you know, including including Arsenal, right? So your point about sponsorship, I really agree with. Some of our deals with Emirates, for example, I don't think we can do the training ground sponsorship. 
And, and that means we've got to get better at this. We've got to be more opportunistic. We've got bills to pay. We've got things to do. Things need updating. Stadium needs updating. The training round could always do with updating. There are things to do. The women's team needs more support, right? There are things to do here. It costs. Let's get better at football, get better at commercial value, and let's bring more revenue in so we don't have to go to squeeze the fans. I read, you know, there's a guy called Darren on Twitter, and he posted out today that they get two and a half mil from this. Two and a half mil don't seem, doesn't seem a lot. Maybe negotiate a better Mavra panel still. Just took guard. You get that two and a half mil back in your pocket and give them away for nearly nothing, you know? So there's room for more efficiency. Um, but I understand there's different types of, you know, different types of bringing revenue in different. This is a business decision, right? They've done a great job of reducing the wage bill. Let's sharpen up commercially so we don't have to squeeze the fan. That, that's my view, really, Elliot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the hard thing is if you sat down and said, here's what a ticket price should cost. Paul, you're never going to be able to arrive at that number, really. Because if your goal is to gain the most revenue from ticket sales, as Tim pointed out, you can really put it up wherever you want. If your goal is to make it, quote-unquote, fair for fans, that's also hard because if it's too low, you're going to see tickets bought out in shady ways and then sold in gray markets and black markets, even even though the club you know, can do some things to prevent that from happening with memberships and things like that. So it is a little sticky, and I think they they wind up just sort of looking around them at where other clubs are at and try to be roughly in that range, but sort of at the top because you're London and whatnot and so forth. But I mean, so I want to like get outraged about stuff, and yet I sort of understand that there's there's no real right answer you can arrive at except to say that like maybe, just maybe, given everything facing fans right now coming out of the pandemic and inflation and some uncertainties that are out there and you're seeing a new young team develop and you're getting new young fans, the next generation of Arsenal fans excited, maybe just maybe don't do this now and take the fuel out of the engine for the rebirth of a new generation of fans. That would be that would be my only really strong thought there. How about you? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, obviously... This news has just come out, um, and so I'd like to kind of absorb it a little more. And of course, Fair, you yeah. know, it, it's not my money. But what I hope, what I would have hoped for when something like this comes out, like if you're in your forties or fifties, your economics are totally different to your economics when you're in your twenties. What's more, in your forties or fifties, it's the experience of of every aspect of it, including the money. Like you'll spend money on things and it'll make you feel good that you spent money on it, depending on what it is. And what, where I'm going with this is if, if older supporters had to spend a little extra understanding that what that did was get access for much younger supporters, I suspect most supporters, if it's well explained to them, would actually be behind that, feel good about it. Like if they're part of what's making Arsenal a new generation of Arsenal coming through, um, through their ticket prices, if it's structured so that more and more of this is to get younger and younger people to get access. You know, fathers have stopped. I've noticed when the cameras go around the crowd, fathers seem to have stopped protecting their children from the massacre by not bringing them to games. They're actually <laughs> bringing them along to see a team playing good fo- football, generally winning. 
with younger, relatable players. I really think we're at a kind of a moment with Arsenal right now. Uh, maybe we mightn't have guessed this in the summer or last season, but it is upon us. This is a new a new era for this team. It is actually a project, an exciting project, the youngest team in the league by some dish by some distance. Mm-hmm. The team's basically new on new contracts, so they're sticking around for a while. So it's a it's safe to get to know these guys' names and to like them. They're not going to get yanked away from you next season, maybe a few seasons away. You might have something tugging at your heartstrings. So it seems like a real opportunity here. And as I say, I, I don't know if they've done this well or badly or anything like that. Uh, I'd leave that to Tim and Clive who, uh, you know, they're the goldfish who swim in that water. So what am I going to say? But I really hope that because I think there was an opportunity to both uh, do something with ticket holders who, like, I don't know what you spend, Tim, on a season ticket versus your football, but you probably spend a shitload more, uh, you and Clive, in terms of going to games, you know, the drinking, the traveling, the all the stuff around it, uh, way beyond the price of the season ticket. So, like... Um, whether it goes up, you know, 4% or not, you probably wouldn't, it's easy for me to say, but I guess you probably wouldn't know at the end of the year when you look at your bank account, whether it had gone up 4% or not. Um, and, and like, I, not that I want to be giving away your money, but I do. Um, <laughs> whatever the, whatever this, they're doing at the moment, like, I think if people see that, I think people get that the club it has gone through challenging times and everybody feels like putting a bit of skin in the game. What they what they don't feel good about is giving money to the Stan Kroenke. Because <laughs> like, yeah. he's a well, gazillionaire. Like that's that's just like this pays no- for one of the dump trucks that hauled dirt to where they built the SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. That's yeah. what this pays for. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. but I've made my peace with the idea that Stan Kroenke doesn't think he should be dipping into his personal funds, and I'm just not going to go there. That's that's not one of rightly the or wrongly, right? I get it. You've just you've just decided to move on from. Yeah, it. it's not they. It's you know who what mm. no fine. Um, so it's within the container of Arsenal Football Club and KSE as a business. They you know there's some back and forward, and I hope that the the compromises, the trade offs we make. I think there are people who, for, who for the right reasons, are supportive of an increase in a price, especially if what's that what that is doing. And the club should see this too. To your to our point about uh, the economics, oh, there are you know they could move it up to a hundred quid or hundred and ten quid. They could, but they'll totally screw themselves over a five ten year period because they're excluding the next generation. So there is a calculation on both sides that says bring through a new young generation at this time of people who developed the habit of going to games week in, week out. I mean, Tim, you did this in your teens, right? You, you became, this became part of the water you swim in and you like, that's, that's when you made your decisions and your life patterns and your changes. Cause like in my twenties, I wasn't going to football. I was going out doing other things, but like, yeah, but well, Tim wouldn't have been able, I'm guessing, to make that decision now under this sort of price scheme, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was in, to be fair, I was in the family enclosure um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. till I was 16 and that was, but yeah, from like the age of 18 to 25, like, yeah, not really, to be honest. Well, so let me, let me ask this well, real quick, Tim, because it's just, there, there's a Twitter account called Footy Scran. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great <laughs> just account. Just like showing the food at the football and like <laughs> Arsenal's food, I can say this having been there, like it's nothing to write home about. The Scran ain't no. great and you pay a lot, but like, isn't another efficiency just maybe like, get more money off the fans with better scran and better, you know, uh, consumable beverages, you know, <laughs> <Like> 100%. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've tweeted it and I know like most premier league clubs, right. First of all, well, at least they think they, they don't have to like their, their view privately is they don't really have to try, um, in terms of catering. That's not what people go for. Whereas a lot of the stuff you see on that account is like non-league clubs or lower league where, you know, you have to you have to get people in through the door, so you have to like treat them well when they're there. Um, I I would I I don't know, but I would question that with the Premier League now. I think the thing is the Premier League is not competing with like League One and League Two stadiums, but I think the Premier League is competing with other forms of entertainment. I think it's the same with football. Football certainly in the UK is not competing against rugby and cricket anymore. It has won that battle it's competing with Netflix and stuff like that. So um, the thing I love about that account is I hope it shames some clubs into thinking "Hmm, there's some good free publicity there. And I'm seeing it now. Like I'm seeing a lot of championship clubs like tagging that account in, Mm. um, you know, with their catering options and stuff. And yeah, and like, you know, closing, like they leave one bar in the stadium open for about half an hour afterwards and that's it. And I don't know, that strikes me as as a bit of a shame as well. But then again, the Emirates is in a place where there's loads of places to eat and drink outside. That's one of the beauties of it. Whereas like our neighbours at Spurs, for example, um, they've got a better chance of keeping people in that stadium because I don't know if you've been to Tottenham, not the place you'd want to go for a drink or something to eat, really. <laughs> right. Um, so it, it does seem to me like they're leaving money on the table elsewhere, though, though, yes. Yeah, well, can I add, yeah. can I add something mm-hmm. quickly, Elliot? Because I think Tim hit on something big there, which is like things are changing. The competition is Netflix, and people staying home and and not going out. And like this is a key window with this particular crowd. Yeah, and it's interesting you say the competition's Netflix. I heard something over the weekend that Netflix have said their competition is sleep. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, because, maybe we can eliminate that. God knows I'm not doing much of it, so yeah. I'm not competing. <laughs> Obviously, there's a bit of Hulu and other stuff, but it's not really. It's they want your attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, everybody's bored at, in that generation, and they will pick something up. So they want your every waking hour, and they basically have it. And like their only competition is your time, your access, your clicks. Uh, you're conscious hours and they'll get their fair share. And like, I think it still says something because things are changing. That wasn't how it was a decade ago or two decades ago. Mm. And I think it's essential to get young people out and like, it's good for them. Get them away from their, like I have a 26 year old daughter and she has a boyfriend and like, I'm talking to him the other day and he picks up his phone during it. 
he, she's not getting your blessing. <laughs> he's not getting your blessing when he comes asking. He, he's a great guy. Absolutely but. great guy. There's only <laughs> to be, to one be fair, thing. Paul, I'm on my phone right now. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know. <laughs> Look, I can see your tweets coming online. <laughs> Look, there's one thing I fucking hate. He's a great guy. I love everything about mm. him. Mm. Jesus Christ. Well, so get anyway, him out there. Fair enough. Yes. Uh, uh, I want to sort of round the corner towards the financial results. And for the record, we'll try to get some experts on uh, to, to go over the financial results in, in greater detail. Not that we aren't all experts in everything these days. And I do want to just address for the people who are listening, we're like, it's none of your damn business what the ticket prices are unless you're a season ticket holder. Like, I totally have sympathy for that because at the end of the day, it's all well and good intellectualizing about season ticket prices when it's not your card being charged, your bank account being debited. So I, I have sympathy for that. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll level with you. I know Americans who are very successful who have season tickets to the Arsenal go like three times a year and put the rest of the tickets on the ticket exchange. And like, they're able to do that. And they'll still be able to do that in the face of this price rise. There are people that will not be able to renew because of this. And so, you know, it, it isn't just some laughing matter. Tim, the one thing I do want to say, though, is what's weird is there's this sort of hybrid model of, of argument uh, argumentation where you have people who will defend a price rise and say, like, well, you know, the club's business. And what do you expect? Like, they had almost no match day revenue the last few years. They haven't done increases, yada, yada. And then when you try to say, like, oh, you know, we shouldn't sign Pablo Marie, like, oh, you think that three million pounds matters? And it's like, well... Pablo Marie was the entire ticket rise. So like you can't have it both ways, right? So like if you want to argue that the club has to do this sort of thing to be an efficient operator, then like you also have to take seriously missteps in the market and wage mm -hmm. bills and things like that. Um, you know, otherwise there are incompatible arguments in my view. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what it does is it just, it just uh, cranks up that scrutiny a little bit. So like when Theo Walcott was on, Fifty thousand pounds a week, mm -hmm. um, or maybe a bit more, and then he got that contract when he was on a hundred thousand pounds a week. You know, back in two thousand thirteen, expectations change. Um, once Mesut Ozil was on three hundred and fifty grand a week, like that was that was a millstone around his neck for the rest of his Arsenal career because, you know, and that once the price goes up, the expectation goes up. So, uh, yeah, next season, it's like okay, fine, four percent. When I go to Arsenal next season, I don't want to see paint peeling off those cannons anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to have to wait 20 minutes to get in because the turnstile's not working properly. Um, and look, I appreciate they're actually addressing these things, but it's like, yeah, okay, fine. But those little imperfections, um, you know, uh, can I get a beer at halftime, please? Uh, is, is that can, is that something I can do um, without having to leave like on 25 minutes before I can get served? Like, yeah, it's just your expectations go up, and that's I, I'm sure the club know that um, yeah. as well. But that that's just how it is. The one thing I will say is that like it looks like the loss that they attribute to the pandemic is about 85 million pounds or so of the 107 million pound loss. And by my math, that means it's about a 22 million pound loss, you know, operating loss, basically non-pandemic related, and that's pretty flat with what we'd been turning. Also, the wage bill is 244 million. I'm just doing some math on players that, because remember, this is the 2020 to 2021 account. Uh, I think it ended May 2021. And since that time, obviously, we're going to get Aubameyang off the wage bill. We're going to get Kolasinac off the wage bill. We're going to get Willian off the wage bill. Like, 
this is now a pretty slim, because at, at 244 million pounds in wages, Tim, just to put it in a perspective, that would have been roughly flat with what we'd been the year before and about the fifth highest in the league. We've got to be some good, good chunk. I mean, maybe down to like 190 or 195 now, which is a pretty modest wage bill. So at least from that standpoint, it would suggest that unless we're just going to be forced to run lean to recoup some of this loss, which you know I don't believe, that there's now room to pretty heavily reinvest, or is that a Pollyanna view? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of people look at the outlay on transfers um, in you know both in 2020 and 21. Actually, I, I understand the 21s ones don't figure um, in this set of accounts. However, that that is the context in which they were paid in, um, and what does that do? But obviously, they're mainly they're largely amortized, uh, amortized anyway over mm-hmm. over several years and like you say the wage bill is coming down um and, but what's really interesting and i know football clubs make this argument a lot about you know well if we get to the champions league um you know we'll have greater revenue but and, and i do have sympathy with this view i think most clubs would argue yeah but it, it goes in it comes out as quickly as it goes in you know because there's bonuses and you know, Bukayo Saka's new contract and stuff like that, like it, it leaves as quickly as it comes in, mo money, mo problems and all of hmm. that. So um, there is that element to it. But again, all it's all it's going to do, rightly or wrongly, is just increase that expectation, particularly when I, I'm sure there's a reason as well they've done this at some distance from the summer. Now they have to announce the club level prices, I think in March, but they have separated those things out before. Um, and so I, I guess there's a value in them distancing this from the summer as well, because if this is announced in May, then everyone's going to go, okay, all right, there's my extra 4%. Who are you buying for me? Who am I watching up front next season? Mm. Um, and, and so there's, you know, there's, there's that element to it as well. It will create that additional expectation, um, on the club. And, and I tell you, I tell you what, people will feel a lot better about it if we're in the champions league, um, mm as well um and that will likely inform a lot of people's decision as to whether um whether to renew or not so yeah you put the prices up then um the the expectations become higher it's it's that simple and rightly so it, it is pretty wild by the way though match day revenue figures went from 75 million to 3.8 million <laughs> it's like guess what when you don't put fans in a stand uh in the ground you you lose a lot of revenue um and that tells you what that loss was. Clive, a couple of interesting things to pick out here, and then I do want to touch on the wage bill thing with you as well. But one, it does sound like um, the club is going to be responsible for the penalty related to exiting the Super League. And, you know, if anybody wants to start to get, you know, a little bit annoyed at stuff, it's like, okay, you're putting up our ticket prices. You probably could have saved all that money if you didn't have to pay a big, fat Super League exit penalty. Um so I'm curious how you react to the, the confirmation. I'll read you a quote here. The account said, the group is monitoring certain ongoing matters related to the closure of the European Super League project. If any additional costs arise as a consequence, these additional costs will be fully recharged to the parent entity, KSE UK Inc. Uh, presumably this will include substantial legal costs associated with Arsenal's exit from the Super League. That's from The Athletic. So uh, thoughts on that particular development? <laughs> not, not really. I think yeah, there was a, there was on a recent. <laughs> well, what, what do you say, right? There was a recent podcast with, with Ali Clifton, wasn't there? With Josh was on there, and, and they said well, what he said there. This is still a legal matter; it's still ongoing, and so that's that's interesting to see what's going to happen there because I don't think that's done. I think that could ease that 
Super League question could easily come back to the table in another guise or two. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I, I'm, hey, look, the most important thing for me, I, I, I'll be honest with you, the most important thing for me is looking at the club and looking at how it's structured, looking at how we're operating today. Um, the, the wage bill piece, there's been a significant drop in wages. We can all see yeah, that. Yeah, huge. There was, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was an article the other week. I don't think I believed it in one of our English papers called The Sun. Said that our sort of read half, the sun. <laughs> uh, so I'm saying that with a tongue in cheek, that our sort of half their wage bill. I'm not sure if that's true, but we definitely know there's been a, a slimming down there. And, I, I, and I'm interested in that because that'll make a significant difference to our year on year expenditure which really will be felt and that's really important you can always find money for transfers if you want to you Mm. can borrow it but your year on year your revenue versus your wages that's a really key figure that's what business people tend to look at right so that they've been efficient there that's for sure they have to pay a few people to go mind but that will realize itself in the next year and i think leave room to give some of these younger members who have been brought in on decent wages it leaves room for expansion. And another thing, like what will happen is, I'm sure in some of these contracts, if you do qualify for Champions League, then there's there's certain wage increases or contract renewals, etc., going to be all hooked in because any decent agent would make sure that was in the contract, right? So, um, so yeah, this is just a start. But at least I like the efficiencies that have shown on the wages side of things. To do that, we maybe have to swallow some some exits, shall we say, some payoffs, mm-hmm. but. Going forward, I feel we're in a much better place. And for being in the ground a bit more this season, there's no shortage of food and drink being bought, and there's no shortage of kits being bought, and there's lots of smiling, happy faces, and all the surrounding areas and pubs are just full and alive, and it's it's all rocking at the moment. So it feels good. Long may, long may it continue at the moment, but I hope this doesn't take away the momentum. But um, I don't think it will. Uh, a, a victory against Watford will sort that out real quick. Yeah. And I mean, Clive, we can talk about transfer spending, net spend. Don't talk about spend. Talk about net spend. Screw all of that. Just look at the wage bills ranked, and you are pretty close to looking at the table with the hilarious exception of Manchester United and, to be fair, Everton. I mean, it's City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs, Everton. Leicester, West Ham, Palace. Like, it's close with the exception of United, who spend the most to get the least, and I am here for it. Um, but, I mean, when you start thinking about Ozil's wages, Oba's wages, Willian's wages, Kolasinac's wages, Lacazette's wages, like over a two-year period, all of those dropping off, not having been replaced with any really high-wage acquisitions, you know, I, I think Thomas Party will be the highest earner at the club when they are all gone. Um, you know, going into this summer, contracts run out July 1st, I think, is when they're done. It, it, I'm not going to say we've had the wage bill, but if it's $244 million, which is basically flat with what it was a year before at 232 you could have taken 80 or $90 million off that wage yeah. bill, absolutely. And you are looking at a team that is poised to be able to reload and to offer a couple of two hundred grand a week type contracts. So... There is flexibility there to strengthen a team that's looking pretty good. And, you know, I'll I'll finish on that. Look, this is boring, boring shit. I get it. But it does wind up having repercussions for how how we're doing. I mean, I guess the thing I would say, Clive, is that, like, if the loss, 
I'm going to say was only 107 million pounds when basically 72 million pounds of that came from just lost revenue from ticket sales. I actually don't think that's as catastrophically bad as I might have expected, given what we were paying some players, lack of European participation, right? I mean, th- there were a lot of things that went against us. And so I'm not, I'm not going to say it's great, but I, th- I thought it might have been worse, honestly. Yeah, me too. I, I, I predicted 140 because I think I read that somewhere, so I believed it, <laughs> like you do. And um, so when I saw that today, I thought, that's not, that's not too bad. Uh, obviously, it's not our money, so it's easy for me to say that. <laughs> I think... Um, I, I look at what we're doing now. This is where my head is, right? So I look at what we're doing now, and we've reduced the squad. And I look, and I think, what sort of squad model are we going to have? What does this reduced wage bill allow us to do? And I'm starting to come around to the thought process that we're going to have a smaller but quite a high-quality squad, right? So you have a smaller number, not as large as it was, and with younger youth players, of which we have plenty that are close to being at that level and show them a real pathway because they haven't got three 30-year-olds ahead of them blocking them. And that will allow these young, other younger players from around the country to think, Arsenal's a place where I want to be. I'm going to be exposed to at least a bench and exposed to first-team training on a continual basis. And that's going to speed my development. And I'm looking at the construct of what we've done recently and I think a lot of us feel feel uncomfortable with the, um, the size of the squad at the moment, but I think the players feel comfortable with it. And I think that's and I think I can see this trend continuing going forward. And I think there'll be a few more to go as we know contractually. And I don't see another eight signings coming in. I maybe see one or two, maybe three, but high quality signings that really do fill the slot. So. What we've done, we've created flexibility in our go-forward plan, and I think that's really quite smart, actually. Yeah, I, I think I agree, and I think that's well said. And, you know, we get over overly invested in accounts. I mean, the one thing that comes from this statement is they basically said the parent company, KSC UK, is providing the working capital for the club to stay a going concern. We don't know if that's being provided at an interest rate that's usurious or, or you know, even just a standard interest rate or almost no interest. We have no ability to know that right now as far as I know. We'll try to get some financial experts on judiciously so that we don't bore you to tears. But I think it's fair to say that like the the club's health right now is obviously tied to KSE and KSE's investment. The club has just lost $107 million, uh, million pounds, pardon me. They'd be happy to have lost $107 million, but $107 million. Pounds. And so We'll have to see what that all means. On a footballing front, Paul, we do play Watford. We'll, we'll talk more about that on the second part of the week. We're going to do double rewatches of the Wolves game, first and second half for patrons this week, so I'm excited about that. Um, and we had a full data review come out over the weekend with uh, Matt Giant-Gunner, which was awesome. But, like, uh, Paul, the United just failed to beat Watford, quite hilariously. Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed it. But one of the things that I love that I can take away from that is, oh, by the way, they sort of battered them and created enough chances to win. Watford looked a little dangerous on the counter, and United created a lot of clear chances they didn't convert. So it's left United, obviously, in a really, really bad position now because they have City, Liverpool, and Spurs plus Atletico coming up, and they need to bank some points now to stay in this top four race. They look like they're drifting out of the conversation, but I'm curious if if you saw that game and if it gives you any cause for optimism, pessimism, somewhere in between going into our game with Watford, because I feel like if Watford play the way they did against United, that actually bodes pretty well for us. 
Yes, it was um, it was another game of, game of shadden fuck em, uh, with Man <laughs> United. Um, Sorry, I already decided "Mo Money, Mo Problems" is the title of the pod, so shadden fuck em's going to have to miss out. Uh, <laughs> no, you were going I wasted for it. it. <laughs> um, Watford have a very dangerous front three, or at least fairly dangerous, um, and they're getting organised at the back, but it's Watford lads. So uh, now. We'll be playing away from home, but it's not that far away. Um, and so, like like always, the important thing is to score that first goal. And I think we're, like, game in, game out, we're starting fast. Even against Wolves, who who won the first 15 minutes, the first one and a half minutes were ours. <laughs> so <laughs> we're generally starting fast and quick. Um, so, uh, look, uh, in this league, anybody can beat you. Um you can get lucky. There's variants, blah blah blah. Uh, Watford certainly need. Watford will be pre- feeling much more confident after that result. Um, I mean, that was at uh, yeah, that was at Old Trafford. Um, so they'll, you know, they'll have got a little tick up. You know, everybody still thinks Arsenal's a little bit of a soft touch. Um, but I think they're about 12 months out of date at this point, especially you take, uh, since it clicked for Arsenal, we're just, we're a pretty deadly team. So the uh, clearly get the first goal. And then I think Ro- Watford's doubts about themselves will will come in strong. I think we have a really good shot at, at getting the first goal. Um, kind of related to this, you know, it, if I look... Remember when we used to get an inordinate number of draws? Um, and I kind of felt it was last year, but it wasn't really. It was the year before, 1920. We had 14 draws. Uh, this year, we have three draws so far. Okay, there's mm-hmm. another quarter, whatever, a third of a season to go or whatever. But we have the lowest number of draws in the league, <clears throat> which is what makes me feel good about games against teams like Watford, right? We're either going to win... Uh, or he says slightly nervously, <laughs> we might lose. But that's to me, that's a, it could be a measure of a lot of things. For me, it's a measure of the fact that we're basically winning our games um, and we don't have a bunch of these draws. So, you know, what, what happened to United? They got stuck in the, I bet they've an inordinate number of draws this year. It certainly feels they do. So we've got to the position where we're, we're not stuck in this, this middle zone, the kind of not quite enough, not defensive enough, not attacking enough, uh, this kind of mediocrity in terms of performance. You can still get screwed, but we're winning our games. Games that are there to be won, we're winning. So uh, you never know, but I don't see any reason that this shouldn't keep rolling. We're we're pretty good with the clean sheets. We're right up there with, with the better teams. Um we're we're getting the three points rather than the one point uh, game in game out. We had a tough January, but we should remember why we didn't have a midfield. Not that we didn't have an attack or a defense. We didn't have a midfield. That's why we had a tough January. And I think since the big click, um, we've been clicking and consistently. <laughs> and I don't think I don't think like you never know when the weekend you you'll have a bad result is, but this doesn't feel like it's going to be the one. I mean, yeah, like you said, you never know because, you know, to be fair to United, and why would you ever want to be fair to United? Like, 
they played well enough to win that game and got a stalemate, yeah. much in the same way we played well enough to beat Burnley, I felt, and, and got a stalemate. And those kind of things can happen, but you'd certainly back us to do it. I, I think there's going to be some interesting, interesting selection questions uh, about that game. It does sound like the setback for Tomiyasu is not great, so that's unfortunate. We'll cover all that later in the week. I think we gave you a good chunk of tactical discussion with Adrian Clark, and then we got to bore you to tears with financial analysis and ticket price mumbo-jumbo, and that feels like the perfect way to celebrate a Monday. So I think we should leave it there. Rewatch the Wolves game with us over on the Patreon side if you'd like to. That'll be coming this week uh, or not. The important thing is that you're here and wherever you are, in any way interacting with us, listening, however you want to get involved, we appreciate it. And as a final word, a very, very, very uh, happy birthday to Andrew Arsblog, turning 20 this week, put out 21 podcasts in honor of it, 20 plus a bonus, um, immense dedication to keeping us all connected to the club and certainly a man without whom and without whose content, I would not be here doing this. So happy birthday, Andrew. Paul's on Twitter, pause my pants, thanks, pause. Woohoo! Tim's on Twitter. It's Roberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. You're going to be okay rewatching the Wolves game. You get through somehow. Yeah, man. I can't wait. I've got some stuff for you. <laughs> I hope you watch stuff. that data review, baby. I hope you watch that. Uh, I watched it. So you and Matt, you hold on to your seat, mate. I'm coming for both of you. I, I know I fell asleep during it when I hear it. Anyway, we love that. All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Watford no. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com